Well, good morning, friends. I want to add my welcome to Shaka's welcome, especially to those of you who are visiting with us here for the first time, and to tell you again, as he already has, that you're catching us on what's a little bit of an unusual Sunday here at Edgefield Church today. Today is the culmination of a, of a season of reflection and discussion and prayer over the funding that we need for major updates to this beautiful building that God has given us. Uh, today, a little bit later in our time together, our members are going to give offerings and make pledges for what we're able to give over the next three years to keep this building healthy and thriving as it has for so long. One of the things that, uh, that we've tried to focus on the most in this season of reflection and conversation and prayer has been the continuity that, that we have with the good work that has been done by faithful Christians in this building over the years. Uh, in, in some of the resources that we put out to help our folks understand what we're asking for, what we're about to do together. Uh, one of my favorite pages is this huge full-page picture of our church building from probably around 1906, 1907, with a dude with his horse and buggy parked out on the curb right outside this window right here. <laughs> this is exact building. That's how he got to church that morning. We've been talking about the fact that that we're here today because that guy and people like him and, and really a hundred years of people like him have been faithful to give, to show up, to, to fix things, to, to, to put what they have into making this building a continuing operating place of ministry for our city. And that now it's our turn. And we have an opportunity at this hinge moment when God, where God has put us, this particular year where we are here with the resources he's put at our disposal to be part of that history uh, and yet one of, the, uh, one of the main focuses that we've had together as we've talked about what's next, one of the things we've tried to make as clear as we can possibly make it is that what we want to hand on to the next generation of people who will come to Edgefield Church is not a beautiful building, not ultimately. Uh, this week we had a time of prayer together over, over what we're doing today and over, uh, praying that the Lord would provide for us. And our brother Mitchell Killian prayed at one point during that prayer meeting uh, acknowledging that, that all over Europe, some of the most frequently visited and most beautiful works of art in the history of humankind are churches that are now just glorified museums. They're empty. They're beautiful to look at, but there's no life in them. What a tragedy, friends, if what we handed on to the next generation of Nashvillians is a beautiful building to look at, a historic place to come and tour. That's not enough for us. What we've tried to focus on is, is what is it really that we want to be part of handing on to those who come after us? And therefore, what we tried to focus on is how this building facilitates the kind of ministry God has called our church to perform. It's a means to an end, not an end in itself. One of the reasons that we're going to study Titus together, starting today and for the next couple of months is that Titus is a letter about succession. Titus is, a, is, is one of a group of letters known as the pastoral letters, where Paul, reached, reaching the end of his life, and knowing that he, he's not got much longer to go, knowing that the work that he's been, been putting his hands to for, for decades is not finished yet, knowing it'll depend on other faithful Christians after him to keep that work going, Paul writes these letters to his sort of minions in ministry, to the guys who'd come up under him, who, who he'd mentored, who'd he taught how to, how to do what he'd been doing. He writes these letters to them to hand on to them what he had taught them, 
the work that he had been doing. And those, those letters get saved and preserved for us and God's providence to hand on to us the same things that he handed on to Titus. Here's how, here's how he put it in, in his second letter to Timothy. He says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will then be able to teach others also. Paul hands it to Timothy, who will hand it to faithful men, who will then hand it to others to come. That's, that's the succession that we're in. See, see, what Paul understood about his race is that it was no sprint, and it wasn't even a marathon. What he was running was a relay race. And Titus is a letter written to help Titus understand how to pass the baton on to somebody else. We're going to spend the next couple of months in this letter so that we can remind ourselves, even as we give to keep this building healthy, so that we can remind ourselves what this building is really for and what kind of life together we're praying God will help us to sustain. Now, at the top of this letter, in the first four verses of, of the letter to Titus, Paul gives one of the longest greetings that he gives in any of his letters. He wrote a bunch of letters. This one is a tiny little letter, but with the second longest greeting, second only to the letter to Romans. Four verses where he just layers on phrase after phrase after phrase explaining who he is and what he's been about. And in this greeting, through each of these phrases, what he's doing is giving little hints, little signposts to what he's going to be talking about through the rest of the letter. He's, in other words, summarizing as he talks about himself and who he is as the writer of this letter. He's summarizing what he's always been about and what he plans to hand on now to Titus, to hand on to his church, to hand on to us. What is it that Paul wants to hand on to Titus, to hand on to us, to hand on to others? From this opening to his letter, I want to show you three things. Three things that Paul writes to hand on to Titus, to hand on to us, so that we can hand them on to others. I'm going to go ahead and give you what they are, and then we're going to walk through them together for the rest of our time this morning. Paul writes to hand on to Titus his priority for the godliness in God's people, hope in God's promises, and confidence in God's word. He writes to hand on, to push forward godliness in God's people, hope in God's promises, and confidence in God's word. These are, what, these are, these are the values we want to be about and we want to hand on to others. Let me start with reading this text. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I pick up with Titus chapter 1, verse 1, and read through verse 4. This is the word of the Lord to us. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Paul writes to Titus, his mentee, who's in charge of these 
churches on the island of Crete to hand on to him what had been Paul's own primary goal in his ministry. And that begins with godliness in God's people. It's just as soon as Paul's identified himself, just as soon as he's given his name and his title, he tells us what he's been doing with his life. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of, here's his purpose, the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. He's gone where he's gone. He's suffered all that he's suffered. He's worked as he's worked day after day and year after year for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. I want you to think of this little batch as a kind of equation. What do you get when you add faith to knowledge of the truth? What you get is godliness. Godliness is what shows up when knowledge is joined to faith. This was the goal of Paul's life and work amongst God's people. Now he's handed it on to Titus. It ought to be our goal too. Let me break this equation down for you. What you get when you, when you, when you combine faith to knowledge of the truth is godliness. Let's start with knowledge. And Paul is rightly famous as a teacher. He spent a tremendous amount of his time and effort passing on knowledge about God. By any measure, he's got to be one of the most compelling and influential teachers in the history of humanity. Just, just a quick read through his letters will show you how much time and effort he put into explaining complicated, difficult truths about God. If you've done any teaching yourself, if you've tried to do any sort of writing, you, you just about have to stand in awe of his output and of what it took him to pull it off. And the truth at the center of this work At the center of all of his preaching and all of his letters and all of his personal ministry, the truth right at the center of it is the truth that's right at the center of Titus. Titus chapter 3, a message that, that, that we call the gospel. Here's what he wrote to teach. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works that we have done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. This is the truth that he wrote to teach. And he spent the time that he spent and put the energy that he put into this work because it mattered to him personally. You can tell he cares deeply for the people that he's teaching. That's why he spends so much time pushing back against teaching that's not true. So many of his letters are written not just to to push forward that summary I just read to you from Titus, but to push back against one after another corruption of it that kept popping up in the life of the church. I mean, poor guy, it's like he's playing whack-a-mole at Chuck E. Cheese. I mean, as soon as he leaves, as soon as he, as soon as he leaves the church that he's founded and moves on to another place, he hears through the grapevine that, that someone else showed up right after him and starts teaching things that aren't true. And he, he writes a letter to whack that one down and then something else pops up over here. No sooner as he's turned attention to that church than somebody else has got some other idea. He's got to whack that thing down and for his whole life. That's what he spends his time doing and not because he's just super uptight. It's not just because Paul is, 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 is just a geek, a nerd who, who cares about getting the details right because it matters to him for his own clarity of thinking. No, he spends the time that he spends fighting for truth because he believes that life and death is at stake. The stakes couldn't be higher. You're either going to put your faith in something that's true or put your faith in something that's not. And he doesn't want his friends putting their faith in something that can't hold the weight of their life. That's why he, not, that's why he works so hard. For the knowledge of the truth. That's why truth matters to him. 
And one of the main reasons he's writing this letter to Titus is that he wants Titus to be as serious as he is about the knowledge of the truth and protecting that truth from error. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. There's your marching orders. You take up my work. It's yours now. And then in a passage we're going to look at next week, he tells Titus, it isn't just your work. You set up elders in every church, in every town. And one of the main reasons you're supposed to set up these elders in these churches is that they've got to be able to, this is a quote, give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. Whack-a-mole is now their game. They're supposed to take it from here. And he would want us, friends, in our congregation to aim for exactly the same thing, for, for knowledge of what's true and an ability to separate it from what's not. He would want us to make no apology for working hard to learn together. So we want a church, what we, what we want to be about and what we want to hand on to those who come after us is a culture where we just make no apology for taking truth seriously, where we work hard to learn together, where we, where we love to study the Bible, where we love to devour good books, where we love to share with each other in conversation what we're learning and encourage each other to keep pressing on. Friends, pray for this culture here. Pray that that's what people will notice when they come, that they'll just get swept up into it along with us. Show up to Sunday school when it kicks back off in time. Invite somebody to read a book with you. Participate in the summer study Shaka mentioned earlier that will be coming up next month. Buy in to a culture of truth. But, but, and Paul wanted more for his friends than just the knowledge of the truth. Knowledge isn't enough. It's not the end game. Paul wants for them a knowledge that leads to godliness. Friends, that's an even better translation, I believe, than, than what comes out in my, in my version of the Scriptures. Maybe this, is, maybe this is how yours reads. I think the better translation here is, Paul did what he did for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which leads to godliness. See, Paul had no interest in what somebody's called bobblehead Christians. I like that image. I see myself in it. You know, Christians whose, eye, whose, whose brains are, are, are full of big and precise and intricately true ideas, so big that, that their brains are way out of proportion to their actual lives, you know, where the ideas are just trapped up there while the rest of them stays anemic and malnourished and shriveled. See, Paul, that, that's not what Paul wants. Paul's goal is not just knowledge, but a knowledge that transforms people into lives that reflect what they know. We're going to see him return in this letter over and over to the theme of good works or godly living. In every single chapter, he goes there. Because for Paul, if you trust what you know about God, if you actually have faith in your knowledge of the truth, if you've thrown your life on it as your only hope in life and death, then it's going to shape every part of your life. And if the knowledge is there, but the godliness isn't, well, that's a sign that genuine faith is missing too. The equation has broken down. Now, I want to make something as clear as I can right here at the beginning, friends. I want to make sure you don't misunderstand what Paul is aiming for here. I want to make it clear now because we're going to come back to it over and over through the study of this letter. We've got to be careful here to avoid two really common assumptions about Christianity. Two common assumptions about Christianity that will lead us astray, that will cause us to miss out on what Paul is aiming for with all of his life and ministry and what he wants us to hand on to others. 
On the one hand, we might hear Paul talking about godliness here, about good works and how important they are, and think, yeah, that makes sense. If I want to be a good Christian, I'll have to earn my spot on the team. God helps those who help themselves. He rewards those who do right by him. I'll only get from God as much as I can pay for through my obedience. But friends, God just isn't like that at all. God is full of grace and mercy. All he asks of you on the front end of your relationship to him is that you come to him empty-handed, that you accept you haven't honored him in the way that you were meant to, that, that this has made a mess in your life that you can't clean up for yourself, that your only hope is that he will forgive you rather than give you what you deserve, that he will restore you in the way that his word has promised to. Nobody ever becomes a Christian by bartering with God. We come empty-handed and throw ourselves on his grace. I just read from Titus 3. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of our godliness, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his mercy. So let's reject assumption number one. Good, when you hear good works, don't think, I'll get from God what I pay to him. Just cause and effect. Don't think that. But, but on the other hand, there's another common assumption we've got to be careful about, especially here in the South. We've got to be really careful we don't assume we're Christians just because we say we are. It, it, it's possible for us to be like those Paul warns about at the end of chapter 1. Those who profess to know God, he says but deny him in their works. Or as, as Jesus himself put it, quoting the prophet Isaiah, we could be like those who honor him with their lips while their hearts are far from him. I, I, especially here in the South, there, there is still a pretty thick layer of what you might call cultural Christianity. Uh, where it can seem like Christianity is something you're just sort of born into. It's something that, you, something that you own, like you own a hometown or an accent or a college football team. And I know that things are changing and that, that Christianity maybe will find a less hospitable welcome in a way than what it had at, at one time. But for now, especially around here, there is still very little cost to claiming Christianity for yourself. And, and in fact, you've got some things you could gain by it. But that's not genuine faith. That's not true Christianity. True faith leads to good works. Titus 3, I've already quoted the part about us being saved not by anything we do, only by God's grace, but listen where Paul goes next. He writes and calls on Titus to insist on God's grace as a means to our salvation. Why? So that, this is verse 8, those who believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You can have a mind full of all the right ideas and a mouth full of all the right words, but friends, if that's as far as it goes for you, it's not far enough. True faith is throwing yourself on what you know about God so that every single part of your life is affected. True faith shows up when what we claim to know about God shapes how we live our lives in ways that reflect his beauty and his goodness. In other words, true faith shows up in godliness. So if the truth about God makes no difference to you in how you talk about people who aren't in the room, or if it makes no difference to how you spend your disposable income, 
If what you believe to be true about God never affects whether you're willing to put yourself out for somebody else or whether you're able to let it go when somebody mistreats you badly. There are fair questions to ask about whether you've put your faith in what you know. Friends, please, as you think about the way you can serve our congregation, as you look ahead to what we want to be passing on to those who come after us, Please work and pray for a culture that values godliness. Not just knowledge, but knowledge that transforms. That's going to mean you taking sanctification in your own life seriously. But it's also going to mean you taking up the promises you've made in our church covenant to be, to be watchful over your friends, to encourage them to forsake sin and to pursue holiness. It's going to mean we won't make an apology for, for paying attention to each other and for in grace Flagging things for each other if they're out of step with what God has told us is good and right and true. This is the goal that Paul has handed on to us so that we can hand it on to others. Let's make it our life's goal. Let's give ourselves for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. That's the first thing. There is a second inheritance that we've received from him, though. Another key focus for all his ministry. And that is at the center of a couple of the key passages in this letter. When we get to the beating heart of this letter and a couple key places where he, where he packs a punch of truth about the gospel, this second inheritance will be right there waiting for us. And it comes through in the next phrase of his greeting. Paul wants to pass on hope in God's promise of eternal life. Look, at, look with me back at verse 2. He's the servant of God. He's this apostle for Jesus Christ. He's, he's doing what he's doing for the sake of God's people. But he's doing it all in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Friends, the horizon for this letter, and, and really for all of Paul's ministry, is eternity. He wrote about this all the time. I mean, this was no man with, 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 ha- with a head in the clouds. I mean, Paul, it, sure, with his day-to-day and his hour-by-hour, he's way down deep into the nitty-gritty. He lived his life in the weeds. This was a man who, who, who was thoroughly enmeshed in the life of this world. He, he did a lot of fundraising for Christians living in poverty. He held down a real job as a tent maker. He got into drama between church members at odds with each other. And in letter after letter, he weighed in on the details of church life, on everything from what ought to be in a worship gathering to how to deal with specific cases of sin in a specific church. And he did a lot of this work in and out of prison and between public beatings. This man's head was not in the clouds. But still, everything that he did, everything he put his hands to, he did while looking ahead with the hope that was set before him as his horizon. It shaped his view of everything that he did. It was his hope that carried him along. And now, in this letter, handing down his ministry to his successors, he comes back to this theme at its most crucial moments. And I wonder, as we look ahead to this as a theme we'll unpack together as we come to it over the next couple of months, I wonder right now, so far, how that phrase, eternal life, lands on you. Maybe the notion of a life stretching on for all of eternity sounds crazy to you, maybe even a little kitschy. 
I recently saw an article in the New Yorker called One Star Reviews of Heaven. It was a comedy piece, as you can take from the title, uh, framed up like a Yelp review on a, on a place like Disney, you know, an entertainment venue. Here's one of the reviews. I feel kind of bad about the one star, but I guess it was just way overhyped to me. And when I got here, I took one look at the clouds and the angels and everybody in white gowns and thought, really? It's such a cliche. Another reviewer writes, At first it was a total rush hanging out with my idols, you know, chatting with Churchill, playing foosball with Shakespeare, etc. Then they started getting on my nerves. I mean, Einstein has this nervous tick where he just says, Yeah, at the end of every sentence. It's much more impressive on TV, that's for sure. It's actually a pretty funny article. I mean, uh, and a big joke, obviously, not to be taken seriously, but a joke that, that works because it's based on notions of eternal life that, that are popular in our culture and that have nothing to do with what Paul's talking about here. Does it sound silly to you, maybe, when you hear Paul talk about eternal life as his horizon? Or, or maybe, maybe does it just sound super abstract? I mean, maybe you're even a believer here today. And you know Christians are into eternal life. You know it's all over the place, but it just doesn't connect. Maybe, maybe because you're still pretty young and you've got plenty to hope for from the next few years or even the next few decades of your life. And if you're honest, in your heart, what you really rather have is a boost up to that next rung on the ladder that you're climbing rather than, than something as distant and unreal as eternal life. Or maybe, friends, you hear Paul referring to eternal life and, it, and you're not just bored, you're, you're a little bit offended by it. I mean, this language of eternal life sounds like what folks would use to justify turning their backs on real, tangible problems in this world. I mean, maybe what's drawn you to Jesus in the first place is, is his ethics, how much he cares for the vulnerable. And notions like heaven or eternal life seem like distractions from the important work that you want to do of making this life better here and now. I wonder if any of these responses are resonating with you right now. I, I can see myself in at least a couple of them. And my sense is that from one angle after another, friends, as we think and talk about eternal life, we're going to run into barriers that make it tough for us to value the hope of eternal life the way Paul did. How can we overcome them? Friends, the first thing you need to do to overcome a barrier that might be in you to connecting with what Paul sees as the hope that shapes his whole life, the first thing that you need to do to overcome that barrier is pay really close attention to the brokenness of this world as we know it. The hope of eternal life doesn't start with turning a blind eye to the world around us, but from paying close attention with both eyes open. See, see, Christians connect with eternal life when they, when they see with honesty the depths of evil in the human heart. When they look carefully at the persistence of injustice throughout history and all over the world. When they open their eyes to the abuse and neglect of children, to the vice grip of poverty, to the relentlessness of war and the awful effects that it spreads, when, when they open their eyes to see the brokenness that sin introduces into relationships, when they open their eyes and grieve over those that they've lost to death and are honest about the inevitability that all of us die. See, Christians 
Christians are eyes open to the fact that even the best gifts in this life are always and uh, and only ever lost to time. This world cannot be good enough for us. And we won't hope in the next election cycle or any changes we might bring about through our hard work. We won't hope in any newest miracle drug or any sort of technology that might be unveiled next year. When we look around at this good and beautiful and sin-sick and tear-soaked world, what we say to ourselves as we see it with eyes open, there is no hope for us but radical intervention. And then once we've looked carefully, once we've given up all hope for any solution but a radical intervention into what's normal now, then we're ready to listen to what God has promised to do about it. See, friends, eternal life has nothing to do with a bunch of chubby angels singing to each other in the clouds or playing foosball with Shakespeare or or whatever. Eternal life is a shorthand reference for everything the Bible promises about exactly the sort of radical intervention we need if we want any hope at all in this life. It's shorthand for nothing short of a new heavens and a new earth, one that's free from the grip of time and death, free from sorrow and loss, free from selfishness and all of its ugly effects. This is what God has promised to those who have trusted him. And And the God who has promised this promised it before the ages began and never, ever lies. I love everything about this phrase. Have you ever said that you'd do something without really thinking it through? God made this promise before the ages began. Before time was a thing before he'd made any of this, when he himself was all that existed, already he had resolved to give eternal life to those who trust him. This promise wasn't a whim. It wasn't some sort of quick impulse. It wasn't given when it was convenient only to be withdrawn under pressure. It's a purpose older than time. And the God who made this promise before ages began never lies. Friends, have you ever overpromised in a rush of excitement? Maybe in the uh, feeling the the feeling the, the draw to be impressive, to be the one who comes through, you exaggerate a little bit on what you can deliver. It does feel good to be counted on. Sometimes we shade the truth and overpromise to promote ourselves or gain something from somebody else that we want, even something as innocent as their respect or their appreciation. Have you ever done that? God hasn't. See, God is absolutely sufficient. He needs nothing from us. He has nothing to gain from puffing up his resume or overpromising on what he can give. When he says he'll do something, it's because he intends to do it, and nothing can stop him. And that hope of an eternal life promised by this God who never lies, it is the comprehensive horizon for everything Paul has ever done with his ministry. And he wants it to be the comprehensive horizon for everything Titus does in Crete. And this letter is saved so that we can read it, so that The hope of eternal life promised by this God will touch everything about what we do together here and what we hand on to those who come after us. 
So let's make some resolutions together, will we? Let's, let's resolve that we just won't choose between love for this world full of neighbors in need and love for the world to come. Whoever said we had to? Paul didn't. We don't have to either. In fact, our hope for eternal life can be a power source for spending ourselves in real and costly ways for good in this life. Our hope is not an escape for us, friends. It's how we carry on. Our hope is rooted in a realism that just won't let us confuse this world for home or rest our hopes here. And let's resolve, while we're at it, let's resolve that we will not be divided in our church over the best way to serve our neighbors in this world so long as we're united in our church around our hope for eternal life. That's what communion represents every time we celebrate it. It's us saying, so much may divide us here in this world that's so mysterious where we see through a mirror dimly. We know our limits and that our limits will keep us from seeing everything the same way. But we also know where we're headed. We know what our only hope is in life and in death. We are united in that hope when we eat and drink together. Let's resolve nothing else will divide us so long as we share this hope as our horizon. Let's be known for hope. And let's refuse to apologize for talking about our hope for eternal life over and over and over and over again. Every single week when we come here, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you now, if you're hearing from me, you're going to hear about eternal life. Hold me to that, would you? And our songs, they're just going to be full of songs about heaven because that's where we're headed and that's what we long for. Nothing else will satisfy us. We're going to preach about it and sing about it and pray about it. And friends, let's just resolve. We're going to remind each other about it. For as long as we have breath, we'll remember this is who we are, a people who were waiting, but waiting in hope. Now there's one more, one more bit of inheritance Paul passes on to Titus to pass on to us that we want to pass on to others through the ministry that happens in our church. This one's going to take much less time, but I want to leave you with it. Because it jumped out at me from this greeting, and I still haven't gotten over the surprise. The third inheritance is confidence in God's word. That his word really is a power source that transforms people and through them the world, ultimately. Paul, let me reset this. Paul has said that he's aiming his life at the faith and knowledge and godliness of God's people. That's his goal. He wants to bring out of their lives godliness because it's beautiful. And he's told us that he's doing all of that, knowing exactly where this story ends, by a plan that God established and that God has now revealed. But now comes to me what is the biggest surprise of this opening greeting and the final piece of Paul's ministry that he'd hand on to us. Paul is confident that the God who made these promises before the ages began has already begun unveiling what he's planned. He's begun releasing the news of it out into the world. He's begun building that people that will live on forever. And his unveiling plan comes through the preaching of his word. Look at verse 3. Paul does what he does in the hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the age began. And, and now, at the proper time, 
manifested, unveiled, made clear in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. This is how God unveils his plan. As Paul put it in his letter to the Romans, this word, this word that has been entrusted to Paul and now to us is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Friends, it's just, it's so unlikely to me that it's almost unbelievable that this is how God is unveiling this age-old promise, this plan to renew all things. We know what big unveilings are supposed to look like, don't we? Some of you are old enough to maybe have, have been part of some of the unveilings of the, of, the, of the books in the Harry Potter series. I remember this. It was before I had kids to get into Harry Potter. And I wasn't into it personally when it was coming out. But I remember these midnight book parties for like book four to the end of the series. People would go and stand in line at Barnes & Noble or Books A Million or whatever. They would, they, would, they would be all dressed out in their gear. It, it was a whole thing. All waiting on the chance to spend their money on this next book and see what would be unveiled in this plan that had been unfolding year after year after year. You remember that? Or, or, or maybe, maybe you've had a little phase as, a, as an Apple fan. Or you remember they were, they were so famous early on with the, with the iPhone and the iPad and the computers and what have you for these huge unveilings they would do. Steve Jobs had this flair for the dramatic. He loved a big event, full, a full audience, a full theater, and, 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 and perfectly timed release of this mind-blowing device no one else had ever thought of. We know what unveilings are supposed to look like, and the bigger the thing unveiled, the, the more dramatic and buzzy the unveiling needs to be. At least that's what we would expect. But where's the drama in preaching? How would you expect God to unveil something of the magnitude of a promise made before the ages began that stretches as far as the renewal of all things? What would be up to that? Maybe some chariots of fire? I don't know. Maybe a thunderous choir of angels singing at the top of their angelic lungs? Maybe at the very least some pyrotechnics. I don't know. I mean, like, like football players run out onto the field through, you know, with the, the, the smoke and the fireworks and the, and the loud bass thumbing, thumping over the, the stadium speaker. Something big, something dramatic. That's what I'm looking for. But no, this great promise, the promise, is now manifested through preaching. It seems so unremarkable, doesn't it? What happens when one person speaks from God's word to somebody else? You can be honest. I'm not going to take it personally. This is pretty unremarkable what's happening right now, isn't it? I mean, I'm just a guy up here speaking, just trying my best to see what's here and pass it on to you guys. To the naked eye, there's not much to see up here. And that wasn't lost on Paul. He actually saw this as part of God's good plan all along. He knew that God loves to work in ways that people don't expect. He loves to confound what we would do to show us that his wisdom is greater than ours and to make sure that he gets the glory for what happens instead of us. As Paul put it in 1 Corinthians, he says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, through the foolishness to the naked eye of everything that's happening right now. It pleased God through that folly to save those who believe to bring a taste of the power of eternal life now into our lives. Friends, at one level, Paul's preaching is unique. His role as an apostle was, 
was a unique role that's never to be repeated. He was one of a select few of, of folks who met with Jesus and were given a job that no one else would be given, a job to nail down what's true about Jesus so that we would have it. But at another level, acknowledging that Paul was Paul and we can't be him, at another level, when we take up this word that Paul as an apostle put down on paper and handed to us, when we take up this word and share it with one another, we're called to the same work he was doing. That's why he tells Titus, teach. Titus, you go now. You teach what, what accords with, same doctrine, with sound doctrine. That's why he tells Titus, Titus, set up elders. They need to be able to, do, to, to instruct people in what's true and rebuke what, uh, what, what's false. And then in chapter 2, he says, hey, tell the older women to teach what's true to the younger women. Make sure they're passing on this word to those that they have influence over. What, what Paul had in mind was us taking the unique contribution he made as an apostle and running with it at every level of our church's life. Because when you take God's word to someone else, you know what's happening? God's promise made before the ages began is being unveiled. It's being manifested. Eternal life is coming. This unveiling work is happening right now as I preach to you. It happens every time you share God's promises with one another. It happens when you teach kids classes. It happens when you lead discussions in small group. It happens when you take up an opportunity to disciple somebody one-on-one -on -one and put the word between you. God can use you if his word is involved. And he loves to use jars of clay to show his strength in our weakness. And this isn't just for preachers. It's for everybody who takes up his word and shares it. So friends, here's the last thing. We want to pray for our church. Pray and work on a culture where God is constantly unveiling the beauty and power and grace and love of his promise to our hearts and minds because we come together over and over and over and every chance we get in every venue available to us around his word, confident that it's enough. It'll do the job. We want our church, our building, our gatherings, our relationships with each other to be a place where God is manifesting this glorious promise. And that'll take all of us. And it'll take prayer. Let's pray now. Before we prepare to give, that God will remind us what we're giving towards and keep us invested not just in our pocketbooks, but at every, every level of our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this good word and the good work you're doing through it. We pray that you would keep us faithful. We pray that our church would be a culture in which we are always seeking after godliness with one another. Where we always keep the hope of heaven before us. And where we're confident that, that you don't need our help to spruce up what your word is able to do. But you work through it despite us in our weaknesses for your glory. We pray that you would help us to stay true to what's been handed on to us. So that we'll have the chance to hand it on to somebody else. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.